Years ago, I walked the streets of a city at the mercy of summer heat. In the afternoons, everything was covered in sheets of brown dust, whose source was that arid country further east. There was a river running through the city, but the river was the colour of platinum, and there were no assurances given that it was not in fact molten metal, the runoff from steelworks perhaps, or the effluent of a nuclear power plant. So you didn't swim in it. You took siestas, skinny dipped in sleep. Failing that, your second best option was to walk under the torn canvas awnings of the market streets and try to find a bar. But these were always hidden in some recess or smuggled underground, so the deed was easier said than done. When I finally found the watering hole that would become my afternoon resort, I was welcomed warmly by the proprietor. She wore a buoyant, home-styled bouffant and had tattoos up her thin, dark arms. And she poured a very pale beer whose only purpose was to quench thirst. And I quickly worked out that I should have another and another and another. Meanwhile, the owner of the bar and I got to trading stories, yarns which spanned consecutive afternoons and many glasses of this blonde, tasteless, perhaps alcohol-free, and restorative ale. One of the tattoos on her arms was a sentence, written in the fleet-footed script of her native language. It was on her wrist, and I tried to read it, as I try to read literally anything that's put in front of me. But I had only mastered about five letters of her alphabet. So inevitably... I would eventually have to ask what it read. Then the proprietor grinned. It's something I apparently said when I was a little kid, she told me. I like to swim, but sometimes I drown. We allowed a lull in the conversation, a pause for wistfulness. And then the proprietor changed tack. She asked if I had ever heard of Isabel Eberhardt. I had. But I pretended that I hadn't because I wanted her to go on. I wished to hear her version of this vagabond biography. For each version of a story admits a variation on how we understand it. Young Isabel, she said, was a girl genius in a doomed family. They were a mix of exiles, and her home was a refuge for lunatics and revolutionaries. Her father, for example, was an atheist, Armenian Orthodox priest. All around her there was a muddle of languages and strange role models. Isabel would make the most of both of these. Another beer was poured and placed in front of me. Do you believe in destiny? The proprietor of the bar asked me. Around here we say that you step into a river at birth and death is the ocean where the stream lets you out. But still, you cannot foretell anything that will happen along that river. Isabel, she went on, began to dress in disguises 
or perhaps the costumes she wore told us better who she really was. And it was around this time she began to travel. She went in search of wastelands where she could be in solitude, where she would stand out but only as a silhouette on the horizon. She went out to barren, stony districts, vast deserts that she crisscrossed for months at a stretch. And in the towns she dressed as a man and called herself Si Mahmud. She smoked hashish, drank absinthe, fucked whomever she pleased. She became a journalist. She stood with the oppressed, printed stories of abuse and neglect, but really she was too fatalistic to affect political change. She carried a revolver, but she was more inclined to turn it on herself than anyone else. Someone attacked her with a sword. She was exiled for a while, but she came back. Isabel had a lust for space. She had no home and so she lived at large, roaming. She'd concluded that she was moved by a stronger and stranger music than most. And she did not try to shut her ears off to that deep song of her soul. But you must also see that she craved destruction. She wanted to dissolve in the desert. That's why she loved landscapes with such enormous distances. She might get lost out there, in those arid, waterless hills. Or project upon it how lost she already was, how alone she was. She had lost her teeth and had begun to wither. She was 27 years old. Perhaps she had malaria or tuberculosis or syphilis or all of the above. But still she, Isabel, or he, Si Mahmud, exerted a curious influence on those around her. She could captivate the colonial general of the country and keep the company of peasant farmers or nomadic traders. One season she rented a mud shack along a ditch, a river that was dried out and defunct. She was on the outskirts of town, among the outcasts. She would sit at night, looking over a fountain that did not flow. But the starlight was more intense than a thousand halogen lamps. One morning thunder drawled in the distant hills. And two hours later that river came rushing up, without warning. The mud huts melted. See, Mahmoud was found washed downstream, identified by his colourful scarf. Exiled, unwell and poor, and still young, Isabel Eberhardt had drowned in the desert. Such was the story I was told that afternoon. I admit that I have since studied the biography of Isabel Eberhardt a little more closely. And perhaps the narrative I relate here is as much my own by now as it is that of the bartender far away. Still, I do wonder why it was Isabel's story that I heard that day. There are no clear answers to that question. But Isabel Eberhardt's own diaries hint that I should keep paying close attention to it. That her story came to me not by chance, 
but by fate. If only we could foretell, at each hour, the vital importance of certain actions, even words, which appear of no consequence at the time. There are no moments of our life that are without consequence or significance for the future. So when I think of Isabel Eberhardt, I wait, cautiously, to see which stream will rise up unannounced and carry me away. For a fair while now I've been living in this rustic old train carriage, which is smuggled away in the forest on the edge of a farming village in Tasmania. I moved here mostly for the natural environment. There's plenty of native bush left nearby, countless species which form habitats for a variety of different creatures. Not far behind it is a wall of mountain an escarpment over a thousand metres high, laced with walking tracks. And perhaps most poignantly it has seemingly endless supplies of fresh water. There are springs on the knoll behind me, and there's also a river that rises high on the plateau in a conservation area undisturbed by any human practices. It feels good to live within cooey of a clean, cool stream. Humans, I think, have always wanted to be near fresh water. It's always strange to see a town positioned far from running water. The significant events of the past have frequently travelled on streams. One historian writes that the names of rivers are regularly the oldest toponyms of them all. They sometimes tell the story of their earliest inhabitants. Alas, that is generally not the case in Tasmania. River names, in fact, are among the oldest colonial replacements, usually replicas of those on the British Isles, like the Derwent, the Esk, the Tamar, the Mersey, the Clyde. But underneath these you can still find a lacework of original names, if you know who to ask. 
The river near me has a name with a more unusual origin. Its name echoes classical culture. Its sister has an unexpected course. And multiple meanings match the river with its multitude of bends. But I will not speak of it here. In the greedy modern world, we must learn to speak of special places infrequently. To use secrecy and pretense to protect those things that we cherish. And in this I take my cue from the platypus, a native inhabitant of my river, a critter who keeps its curious manner discreetly hidden within curtains of shyness and uncertainty. So much so that even in cities, in Hobart or even in Melbourne, platypus exist, preserved in peripheral territories, underground, underwater, in the spots where people don't often look. Platypus are not great travellers. Generally, the home range of a platypus is fewer than 10 kilometres long, far smaller for females and much less for the juveniles. And they are entirely bound to rivers, to streams with pools and riffles, with well-vegetated banks in which they build their burrows, some for resting and retreat, others for nesting. Of course, such living spaces are becoming more difficult to come by, Recent research shows that more than 20% of platypus habitat has been destroyed in the last three decades in this country. And there's no doubt their living space will diminish as we keep mismanaging river systems, damming them, clearing their banks, and polluting them. And as introduced predators remain a persistent nuisance, and as the climate keeps going haywire, times are tough for platypus. I suppose shelter is hard to come by for more and more creatures. But it strikes me as perhaps the strangest thing, that we have not foreseen the fate of our waterways. It's a treat that I can drink from my local river. But it of course should be completely normal. Why on earth would you wreck your neighbourhood, the nearest source of life? And yet, you are more or less allowed to do it. We have killed a great many rivers. In this century we'll kill more. The poet Auden once said that a culture is no better than its woods. And a later writer, Roger Deacon, added to that, that it was just as true of its rivers. People who don't look after their waterways obviously have warped values, unhuman intentions. Here in this nameless valley I have spent much of the summer by the river. The water there runs a pale ultramarine at times, or has a hazy gold glow sometimes in the afternoon. If you're lucky you will see these amphibious angels, the platypus, or else a pair of pink robins flitting between the dark branches, or a sea eagle cruising towards its eyrie on the cliffs. If you're unlucky... You will find me naked, swimming unnecessary laps of the small pool where I jump in. I slide in through a small gap in the greenery. Sometimes I get some sun on the cobbled stones downstream. Other times I return to the forest shade and read. The splashing of cascades always seems sweet, a pleasant accompaniment for whatever meditation. 
It's a fitting contemplative experience for a moment in platypus habitat, in a place that is known as much for its secrets as for its surfaces. I feel that it's a great place to make a retreat, a place to shelter, a place where I might learn some useful habits to take into the modern world. I once found myself investigating the nature of a river that had seven names. That is, in seven different places it bore a different name. A curious stream, in the cast country of Slovenia. It frequently took itself underground, through the limestone chasms that buttress much of that part of the world. It seems that in the past it was considered sacred in each of its seven segments. Archaeologists have found thousands and thousands of gift offerings that have been cast into the river throughout the centuries, although no one can say exactly what they hope to make the river do by depositing objects in them. To follow the river can only be done by cave divers, and no doubt it has been done by now. But in historic times it must have been one of the most mysterious of landmarks, a moving, living, spirited being. Tracing a river to its source can take you into perilous territory. So too chasing it to its final destination. Take, for example, the Alfios River in southern Greece. Even till recently these were tawny, robust waters with a bed of small stones dappled by the shade produced by poplars and willows. Full of perfect swimming holes, although not without risk. And of course the Greeks had a myth to tell us why this should be so. Once upon a time you might have found Artemis here, the goddess who roamed the woods and hunted with great skill. And indeed after an outing one day with her bow and arrow bent with use and her face and legs streaked with mud, she came down there for a skinny dip. But the river's waters rippled and rumbled around her body with more impertinence than usual. And from its depths came a muffled voice. Artemis quickly scrambled out onto the bank. "'Why do you leave me, lover?' cried out the river with its splashing. It seemed it was a young fella, also a hunter, who had connived to turn himself into a stream. And so Artemis bolted. Fair enough, I guess. Still completely stark as she fled through the bush with the speed and dexterity of one who loved the outdoors. But the river raced after her. When she told the story later, Artemis said it was like she were a dove and that river a bird of prey. And in my mind's eye, I can indeed see the Alpheus as a dark-plumed goshawk swooping after its quarry.
The goddess, though, to me, is not so much a dove as a green rosella. Although I suppose I'm imposing my local ecology on the Mediterranean in saying so. The two of them were equally fast. But Artemis's stamina would give out. It was like the river could run effortlessly forever. Artemis called out for help. Or perhaps being a goddess herself, she came to her own assistance and drew out a miracle from her inner depths. Whichever the case, she too turned into a stream. She could feel it happening all of a sudden. Alpheus tried, momentarily, to mingle his waters with hers. But then a rock wall broke open at Artemis's advance, and she flowed out into the Ionian Sea, under the salt water, away from her suitor, and off to the island of Sicily, where she rose as a spring. In his rampant pursuit, of course, Alpheus was obliterated in the Ionian Sea. I guess he got what he deserved. It may seem bold to anthropomorphize rivers, to foist human feelings and motives and moods onto them. But in fact, it appears that rivers wear our metaphors more than other elements in the physical landscape. There is something about a river that makes it seem like a living presence, on a scale that humans have related ourselves with, more so than the seemingly sturdy or stoic landmarks like trees and mountains, moorlands and deserts. In truth, so often our fate has been twinned with the streams around us. The histories of trade and culture are carried by our waterways. In the River Elba a few years ago, in a hot summer in the Czech Republic, carved rocks were exposed. They had been placed there centuries ago, etched with memorials and warnings, mottos that told the stories of their times. They were records of other hardships. Times of drought when the Elba had dropped so low that the locals could no longer rely on it for agriculture. If you see me, read one of these messages on the rocks from 400 years ago. If you see me, then weep. This past summer I spent much time marching up rivers in search of nothing in particular. Right down south I pulled up a broken branch of paper bark and made it my staff, like a gondolier's pole, but for a boatless man. Sandals were strapped to my feet and I stepped cautiously along the cobbles of a riverbed dyed red with tannin. Skittish native fish scattered at my approach 
their own spotted flanks disappearing into the speckles and shadows of the river's surface. Over the stream, swallows made circular sorties. A pair of black cockatoos called from beyond the banks. Then I dived into an eddy the colour of pitch and disappeared for a moment, peacefully annihilated, as in the wisdom of Buddhist philosophy. When I got back into reception after a week, I learned that on the mainland, rain had fallen as a cataclysm, all at once, and come crashing down drainage systems in a huge rush. Flood had ruined large districts, destroyed infrastructure, and people had died. The moods of the weather can be bloody volatile, and the rivers, in consequence, can't help but be brutal in turn. Sometimes the river murmurs, wrote Mary Oliver. Sometimes it raves. But we seem to live at a time when it oscillates between the two as if with a fever. Drought alternates with flood. And likewise, politics divides people into opposing camps. It's a recipe for disaster. Or rather, for a menu of disasters that now seem to dovetail into one another without end. As another poet, T.S. Eliot, put it, rivers have the capacity to remind us of things we choose to forget. We ignore them at our peril. But it all begs the question, do we now just have to get used to catastrophe? Is it time to accept the fact that all our landmarks are out of whack? that our life for the world around us is turning out all wrong. Must we get used to uncertainty, to chaos, and to moving towards a future defined by fires and floods? What do we do when the river raves, when the skies are screaming, and when country seems to have curled its lip at us? A flood is the basis for some of humanity's oldest yarns. Marked on the world's mythological record is some great inundation that submerged much of the earth. For example, in Mesopotamia, a handful of great gods conspired towards a global diluvial drowning. So history offers us some precedence. There has long been planetary drama and the gods lose their temper over the most trivial things. But it's a hell of a test we've found ourselves in, when once-in-a-hundred-year events seem to happen every week. What is being asked of the living creatures of today involves a kind of mental athleticism and adaptability that perhaps has not been required for a very long time. It has echoes of descriptions of other epoch-ending events other apocalypses. A river's serpentine form, its tendency to rise and fall and rewrite its own trajectory, is a fitting metaphor for the years we're living in. Learning to live is like navigating these impermanent courses. As you have heard before, 
Heraclitus wrote many centuries ago, that we can't step into the same river twice. All is provisional. All is variable. Life is the realm of ambivalent and ephemeral matters. You carefully watch the ripples. You look out for currents. They do not repeat themselves ad infinitum. Not all of us, mind you, use a stream as a linear metaphor. Not all of us see life as beginning at the source and trundling off to the river mouth. Some will look instead to the water cycle, a circular form. Drops are carried up and dispersed, scattered and reformed. Others believe we are persisting upstream, like headstrong fish towards the source. Perhaps it's worth playing with these images. The simple device of seeing time and history moving as if in constant progress, in a procession towards the end, is not exactly working out for us. Returning to phone reception, leaving the bush telegraph and getting back onto the internet, hasn't exactly stoked a positive attitude in me. I liked being where the river was murmuring, where to swim felt like being caressed, dipping into a type of interconnectedness. Now I feel I must turn my attention again to politics, so I listen to speeches and debates and get the sense that as a species we're pretty content to plunge blandly into destruction. The words used are crude and careless. We remain staunch and obsessed with trivialities while tragedies pass us by like deadwood drifting out to sea. I ponder river metaphors and think of a whirlpool. It is as if we're getting sucked underwater and don't know how to fight our way out. So I've been thinking on other ways of talking about all of this. Because it seems that none of the following work. Reason. Reportage. Lectures. Logic. Even ranting and raving doesn't seem to have much effect these days. 
nor pointing out the obvious. So I'm just going to dunk myself in the imagination for a while and hope that down there there's another language that leads to someplace new. A river more than almost anything else touches lives. So I take myself down to a stretch of water that I don't know well and allow myself to wonder. I try a few different techniques to take my mind off the news and wash the concerned wrinkles off my brow. The best method I've found is to hurl my face into a pool. That gets me right into the essence of things, into a state of pure being. But it only lasts a second. Skidding downstream, sliding along all the runnels and cascades seems good too. You cop a beating, you obtain some bruises, and in your strange solitary sport you get a hint of quietude as well. At other times I have tried to catch the rills as they tumble tidily down the rocks, or even more impossibly, to snare the bands of light that dance off these ever-changing surfaces. Prospectors, past and present, have gone to streams with their pans and looked earnestly for flecks of colour. They have caught alluvial sediment and sifted it for sapphires, for silver, for gold. Few have ever made their fortune from it. Most have just stood around with cold water around their gonads and been left to wonder what other gamble might have paid off better. I once heard tell of a man, a scientist, who tried to come up with a method for changing his life. He hired a team of hydrologists and mathematicians to survey a bend in the river near his home and commissioned a report that would tell him just how he could curve and take on a new direction himself. How he could change career in exactly the same way. Unfortunately, as it happened, he fell into clinical depression and for a season he stayed in bed. The surveyors, pissed off about the pointless task they'd been given, threw their equipment into the trees and left. Their notes got damp and mouldy. In the end, the man dreamed that wild animals had carried him out of his house and back down to the river. He awoke to find himself sitting on the bank, with his feet in the shallow water, his toes feeling the sharp surfaces of the gravel bed. An eagle flashed overhead and he had a momentary bird's-eye vision. It was all a complete system, he realised. The caddis flies in the air, the fish in the currents, the birds circling above, the curve at the bend of the river. And even people, even he himself, the miserable scientist, even he belonged to it. Perhaps if you are not myopic, and can focus on glints that suggest something other than mineral wealth, you will do alright with alluvial prospecting. There are plenty of other colours down there. The leaves of the Myrtle Beach, for instance, have a tremendous range of hues. The scales of dappled fish are lovely. A freshwater crayfish has an aloof blue that makes it seem like it comes from a distant galaxy. 
Have you ever noticed the different shades in certain algae and water weeds? The wings of butterflies reflect a profusion of elegant patterns. Hold your pan at the right angle and you might briefly catch a rainbow. None of these reward greed. But to me they sum up a good life. Or at least a good afternoon. And much of the time, you can ask for little more. I suppose we would all like a Monet to paint our local creeks. A Mary Oliver to make sense of the momentary things that move through our lives like streams. Here and now, this job seems up to me. In this particular longitude and latitude, it has been a beautiful summer. Now, where I am, the river is getting colder, and my swims, as a consequence, are getting shorter. But I do like the briskness. It speaks of a natural rhythm. Darkness gathers on the edges of the sky. Winter closes in. I enjoy the change of seasons and will as long as I can trust them. In another country, the frozen surface of a river is melting. Flowers are sparkling along the banks of creeks. In one old story, all the major rivers are the offspring of the ocean. In some future myth, we will tell of an historic time when the waterways were clear and generous. With luck you will hear me speak this way. I will say, Once upon a time, I swam in dreams.